Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guest. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to set up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the 9th Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. In the summer of 1908 and 1909, and uh, the reason it's listed as two different years is because we're dealing in the south, uh, the southern hemisphere, in fact, in Antarctica. In the Antarctic summer of 1908, 1908, excuse me, in 1909, Sir Ernest Shackelford and three of his companions attempted to travel from the South Pole uh, to the South Pole from where they were staying for what had been the winter. They started with four small horses carrying their load and tried to traverse over to the South Pole across Antarctica. But weeks later, they realized this mission was not going to last. All of their small horses, their ponies had died, their rations were almost gone, and they turned back toward their base. They hadn't accomplished their goal at all. And Shackelford would later write about that adventure in a book called The Heart of the Antarctic. And altogether, they had traveled for 127 days days. And they wondered how they could make it back to base camp with rations down to next to nothing. And obviously, uh, disease and other things began to become a problem. And what he wrote in his book was, the way they made it back was every step of the way back towards their base camp, all they spent their time talking about was food. They talked about elaborate meals, feasts, buffets, anything they could think of to remind them that if they made it back to base camp, This hunger that was within them would be taken care of. They staggered along, and eventually all four made it back to the base camp. When I read that story and think about that story from all those years ago, it makes me think of some of the more famous words Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Some translations have, they shall be satisfied. Matthew chapter 5 And verse 6. Tonight's lesson, I told Ethan I was going to do this. I'm going to break preacher protocol and tell you I'm not going to preach very long. Tonight's lesson is not very long. But what I wanted to do do tonight is connect that verse, that beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, to something we'll read at the end of our time together in a few moments from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. If you have a Bible, we're going to be jumping around to several verses now, and I hope, you, hope you're okay with that. But we're going to not read that verse from 2 Corinthians until we get there. The basis for our thinking tonight is what Jesus said in that beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Our word for this week is the word righteousness. And we need to think about what that word means. In Scripture, and there is a connection, oftentimes, between righteousness and words like justice. And some have described righteousness very simply as living right or right living. And that gets close to the idea. It's not a bad way to remember it, at least to get the idea in our minds. But we need to keep in mind that when the original readers of the Bible and those to whom Jesus was speaking would, would use words like righteousness, they did not just have in their mind how they acted Instead, they had in their mind how they thought, right thinking. And if you think about it, that fits perfectly with virtually everything else Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, does it not? Because how often in the Sermon on the Mount did Jesus go to the inward person and basically say, if the inward person is right, 
the outward person will be right. But if the inward person is wrong, then it doesn't matter what I do on the outside. It begins in the heart. It's the heart of the matter. That's what Jesus is striving throughout the Sermon on the Mount. But I want us to notice that the response that Jesus would have gotten when he said that specific beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, by those who heard him originally say it, would have basically been one of, of, of shock or even disbelief. And it's why he worded it the way he did. Did you notice that he did not follow the way every other beatitude is listed or given? It does not say, blessed are the righteous. But how many other beatitudes read that way? Blessed are the meek, for example, or blessed are the poor in spirit, or those who are poor in spirit. But this one doesn't read that way. It doesn't say blessed are the righteous. Instead, it's, it's an aspiration. It's a desire. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, to those who originally heard those words, that would have sounded like something extremely difficult. And here's why. In their way of thinking, and I hope to help us remember this tonight as we go through this lesson, in their way of thinking, they thought you cannot truly be righteous. No person can truly be righteous. And don't we see that mentioned in the Old Testament and in the New Testament? Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, for example, there is none righteous. No, not one. To be truly righteous, if you want to take it to its extreme level, is to have our minds and our actions always in line with the nature and the will of God. And no matter how much we might think we have it together, we are going to fail to live up to that standard from time to time. And so none of us can fully be righteous all the time in every circumstance. Why do you think the Pharisees and others of Jesus' day came up with all those just scads of laws that were meant to be followed in addition to the Old Testament law? Now, one reason was negative. They wanted to kind of set up a standard that made themselves look good, made themselves look above everybody else. But there might have also been a reason that may not have been quite as negative. And it was because they were so concerned with breaking the law that they wanted to build a law around the law to make sure they never even approached breaking the law. The problem was they began to elevate those extra laws or those traditions, as they're often called, to the same standard as, and sometimes even more important as, the law that God had given. The question becomes for us, how can we be righteous? And the answer really is, we, we can't, at least not perfectly. In fact, we just sang that a few minutes ago. Did you notice when we sing one of the most famous songs we sing from time to time, we do not sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and my righteousness. That's not what we sing, is it? Jesus, in that line, that lyric of that song, is possessive of both things. My hope is built on nothing less, if I may change the lyric slightly, than Jesus' blood and Jesus' righteousness. That's what we're singing. To those who heard Jesus say these words in Matthew chapter 5, they would have wondered, how can one really be righteous? And when they heard Him say that, their minds probably would have gone back to the life of Abraham. In fact, to when He was still known as Abram. In Genesis chapter 15, you remember that God restates at least part of His covenant to the man then known as Abram. And in Genesis 15 and verse 5, God said to him, Look toward the heavens and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then God said to Abram, So shall your offspring be. And then we're told in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, a very important statement. And he, that is Abraham or Abram, believed the Lord 
and he counted it to him as righteousness. Do you see an emphasis in that? Did Abram or Abraham have faith? Absolutely he did. Did that faith lead him to do things for God? Of course it did. We, we spent a lot of time studying the life of Abraham. and How many of our young people, especially in their Bible class, have spent seemingly sometimes entire quarters studying all these amazing things that Abraham did throughout his life? But was Abraham or Abram righteous of his own doing? And the answer is no. Did you notice how that was worded in Genesis 15 and verse 6? God counted what he had done as righteousness. Now that may sound technical or like we're quibbling over a a small detail, but in reality it's huge. It provides us with a balance that we need to have in our spiritual lives, our understanding of what it means to be faithful to God. On the one hand, it reminds us that we must have faith that leads to action. And so it helps to avoid the concept of we're saved without any kind of faith or we're saved without any kind of of doing anything faithful to God. You think, example, of Hebrews chapter 11, all those faithful people. Yes, by faith is the beginning of all of them, but their faith led them to do something. And we see that reiterated constantly in Scripture. We must have that faith that acts. But on the other hand, it helps us to see that we could never be righteous enough of our own doing but simply because we sin. And the moment we sin for the first time, we cease being truly righteous. But as we seek to be faithful and obedient, and as we, as we seek to live within the will of God, our Lord counts the faithful acts that we do as righteousness. Sounds a lot, a lot like Ephesians chapter 2, doesn't it? that we are saved by grace through faith. There is a balance of God's grace that saves us, yes, but our own faithful obedience that is a reaction to the grace that we see that God has placed in our lives. Now, I want you in your New Testament to notice that phrase, that Abraham or Abram believed God was counting him for righteousness, is brought over to the New Testament. In fact, it's brought over twice. The first is found in Romans chapter 4. And in Romans chapter 4, Paul was trying to show that Jewish Christians, those who have been Jews, now they become Christians, that they needed to have faith in God's new way, the way of Christ. Romans chapter 4, notice what's written in verses 2 and 3. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What's Paul's point, at least in part? We can unpack a lot of things in those verses in the context. But at least in part, what he's saying is, did Abraham and did these Christians just have to, to, to not do anything? Well, of course not. Their faith would lead to an obedience that God would count to them as righteousness, something they couldn't achieve on their own. That was to Jewish Christians, those who looked back at Abraham and said, that's the father of the faithful. That's the one that we can live our lives following his example. And he's saying... No, Abraham did good things, but God still had to count those deeds as righteousness. The other time this phrase is found is in Galatians chapter 3. And in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is trying to show that that same concept is true for Christians who have been Jewish as well as those who have been Gentiles. Paul quotes the same phrase in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And then he wrote these words beginning in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. 
So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so to those original readers, Jewish Christians need to live by faith, but they would still have to rely on God since they sinned at times. But the same would be true of Gentile Christians. And so we can think about that and look at Abraham back in the Old Testament, Jewish Christians in Romans chapter 4, Gentile Christians in Galatians chapter 3, and think, well, then, then, then why try? Why try? If, if Abraham couldn't be faithful enough, and Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, if they couldn't be faithful enough, sometimes we could get, well, then I don't really have to try all that hard. If God is going to take any good thing I do and counts me for righteousness, then why try to do anything that's good? And that's why Jesus worded the beatitude the way he did. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It is true. None of us can be righteous of our own doing. But it should be such a strong desire that it's, that it's the feeling that we are absolutely famished or we're absolutely parched if we're not striving for that excellence of being as much like God as we can be. John Redhead, in a book about the Beatitudes, wrote these words. He said, The desire for righteousness must be all-consuming. It is not enough that it be a fleeting fancy, an occasional wish. It must be so constant and compelling that it becomes a passion. Notice that it is a desire to which Jesus likens the strongest craving, hunger and thirst. David had that desire, by the way. All the way back in Psalm 17 and verse 15, he said, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, okay, I know where this lesson is going. We're going to start listing things that people desire instead of righteousness or people, that people hunger and thirst for instead of righteousness. If we wanted to, we could start asking how many of us sometimes strive for other things than righteousness or other things more than righteousness. How often do we, we try to have a little bit of this and a little bit of that? But instead, I want us to see what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want us to see and ask, how can we really do that? How can we be righteous if we've already said it seems like it's impossible? And the answer is found in Galatians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you've never noticed this verse before, I hope it will change the way we look at this concept. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, at the very end of that chapter, Paul wrote an amazing statement in verse 21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that, effect, in him we might become the righteousness of of God. Read it again. For our sake God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What what does that mean? It means we have an opportunity to be righteous even in the sight of God, but not because we're so wonderful. We have an opportunity to be righteous even in the sight of God because Christ took our sin upon himself. In other words, on the cross, Jesus took on the form of one who was unrighteous. He took upon all the sin of the world, all my sin, all your sin, the sins of the world, of every person who's ever lived or will ever live. Why? So that we could become in the form of Him. That we could become more like Christ. What difference should that make for us? Our hungering And our thirsting is not just to do good works in order to do good works. Our hungering and thirsting is not to do good works so that we look good to other people. 
Our hungering and thirsting is not to, to do good works so we have some kind of veneer of religion and people think better of us than, than is really true. Instead, as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we are really hungering more and more to be like Jesus because of what He has already done for us. He took our place so that we have a chance to be like Him. And the more we become like Him, the more the Lord counts what we do as righteousness. Are you tying all this together? That's the only way that we ever fulfill the remainder of that beautiful beatitude. They shall be satisfied. Does the search for Christ, the desire to be like Him, does it dominate everything in my life? Does it dominate the things that I think about? Does it dominate my decisions? Does it dominate my relationships? Does it dominate what we decide to do as a family? Does it dominate my entertainment choices? If it does, then and only then will I find satisfaction. If I try to seek God's righteousness in part of my life, but I try to live for the world in other parts of my life, I'll never be satisfied. I'll never be at rest. If, if I put God first only a few hours of the week, or only when certain people are around, but do not make pursuing being like Christ my first desire at all times, I'll never be satisfied. I'll never have that rest in my spirit. But if we hunger and thirst after Christ, if I realize that He took my place so that I could be counted as righteous, that I could become the righteousness of God, I will not be partially satisfied. Notice what Jesus said, they will be satisfied. Many of those who heard Jesus say that would have thought that was basically impossible. Because their thinking would have been, wait a minute, nobody can follow this law perfectly. And we might think the same thing until we realize that Christ took our place and provides for us a way to not not just live a righteous life, but to be the very righteousness of God. Do you see the balance? Yes, we must strive to do good works, faithful obedience like Abraham had. But none of us can ever be faithful enough to say, God, look how wonderful I am. I've lived my whole life perfectly before you. But if I'm living in faithful obedience before him, the good deeds that I do because of what Christ did removes the barrier and God takes the good that I do and counts it to me as righteous. And I can be the righteousness of God. Now that's a way to live your life. That's a way to look at this world through an optimistic lens. Because it's not looking at the world and saying, I can never do enough. That's true. We never could do enough. But I can do all I can do. And anything that I fall short on, if I'm walking faithfully, walking in the light, as John would say in 1 John chapter 1, God will commend those things as righteousness. If you want to think of it this way, Christ will help fill in the gaps. And aren't you thankful He does? Yes, we must live a righteous life. But none of us can do it perfectly. Christ came that we can become the righteousness, the right thinking, the right living, the whole person who is right in the sight of God. How? Because Christ was right in the sight of God. And he took my place when I wasn't. Aren't you thankful he did? Aren't you thankful he did? Tonight, don't you need to realize that you need to give your life to him if you never have? That 
it's, it's, he took your place, but we still have to be faithful to him. We still must come to him on his terms, believing that he's the son of God, repenting of sin, confessing him as Lord, and then being baptized where our sins are washed away, immersed in water where those sins are taken away by the blood that he shed when it should have been me. Tonight, if you're a Christian, are you living in such a way that, that you're striving to live with that faithful obedience and living with that optimistic view that if I am striving my best, that I can be faithful? If not, why not make it right? Why not step out of here tonight and say, you know what, I want to do better. I want to be more faithful. Not that I can be perfect, but I want to be faithful. And we'd love to pray with you and encourage you. Tonight, whatever your need is, we invite you to come. We stand and sing to encourage you.